check, check, check. Do you need this for now? Thanks. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm old and need reading glasses. Oh, look at that. Um, we're doing something a little different this, this fall, and uh, that's why, first of all, I'm down here. Balcony people have a hard time. But I can see you. You're good? Yeah. Sitting up there is like watching people go to church, isn't it? Anyway, but, but, but we're glad. We're, it's lovely. That, um, what I'd like to do each week is, is tell you a story. Here's why. I've come to feel as a pastor that there's a tension that happens in the Christian life, and churches can inadvertently propagate it, where people can struggle with a sense of what it means to live your Christian life on a day-to-day basis and what you should expect in that Christian life. And because churches often, and unfortunately the way we measure success this day is just big. Something's big. And so even if they don't really mean to, churches in the desire to just get more people to try to put on a bigger show or something and do... And often we don't help people really understand what it means to live your Christian faith and what should be expected. The tension as I've experienced it has two sides to it. On one side, and I love and work with all of these kinds of people, you will find yourselves among them. On one side, you have people who say, well, the Christian life should just be basically victory after victory, spiritual mountaintops, no suffering. Some people are laughing. <laughs> anyway, um, and, and, you know, what's wrong with people that they're not experiencing more? And, you know, there's some truth in that. We need to hear those people in our midst. It's just, you know, don't let them take charge of everything. On the other side, you have people who say, maybe not as boisterously, but that actually we pretty much live just like everybody else, and we shouldn't really expect that much from our faith. And sometimes feel a little beleaguered. My interest is, and it's why I want to tell people's stories, and if you so choose, it's possible that I could tell yours. I'll consider it. And I won't do so, certainly, without asking permission. But so what I want to do each week is tell a story of somebody that many of us have known or might be part of our midst right now. And then, later in the sermon, give a scriptural reflection that relates to some of that. So now, the really important questions. You're asking, so is the time Todd taking now, is that extra to the sermon? Am I going to be here longer? Well, the hope is this, that this part, you know, the sermon is is shortened, but this part is an important part for you to consider as you seek the Holy Spirit and what God is saying to you today. So let me tell you this story. It'll take a bit. Enter in. I remember what I was feeling the night that I met Mike. I was working at the Presbyterian Church. And I was tasked to run a Sunday night service, and they'd spent thousands of dollars at my recommendation to outfit the stage of the gym into a theater. And it wasn't working like I wanted it to work. We weren't getting enough people. And I was sometimes mildly and sometimes more than mildly depressed. And on this particular night, a man came to the service who I'd never met before. I noticed him, felt a small bit of encouragement. At least somebody came here by mistake or something. But notice that there was something potentially off about him. 
We carried on, did the service. I was friendly as much as I could be in my state. After the service, and I had all kinds of helpers and clean up and everything else, almost everybody had gone home, and I found myself down in what at nighttime are scary hallways of church and basement offices. I was in the back hallway. You guys know it. I was in the back hallway. It was dark, and I heard this, Hey! And I was startled. And I turned around, and there was Mike. And I was a little bit nervous. And he said, Can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure, because I'm a pastor. I didn't say the second part. I just said the first part. <laughs> but I didn't want him to come into my office because I thought that might make, take longer. And so I ducked into the nearest available room. It happened to be the counting room, which is the, one of the... There's, actually, there's scarier rooms at SAS, but it's up there. It's tiny, windowless. We sat there, our knees almost touching. And I was trying to care said, hey, it's good to meet you. Really glad you came tonight. And he said, I really liked it. I really liked what you had to say. It made me feel a little bit better, but I said, thanks. Something else nice. And he said, I want to, I need to tell you something. And it's not going to be easy to hear. Great. Still trying to steal my pastoral resolve. Sure, go ahead. Stay with me for the rest of the story after I tell you the next bit. Some of you know it, because he told some of you, too. It's not going to be easy for you to hear. Okay, go ahead. I think you need to know that I think I'm Jesus. Quiet. And I'm praying. By God's grace, I think something appropriate came to mind, and I said, Oh, that's interesting. I said, are you okay if I don't think you're Jesus? He said, yeah, that's okay. I said, all right, let's go with that. Mike became a friend. This delusion of his would go in and out. When I went from St. Andrew's St. Stephen's to Sutherland, he's about the kind of guy that followed Although Kim and Amanda and some wonderful, you know, easily, you know. But the ones with delusions, they'd always follow. <laughs> Mike came here. Came part of this church. Many of you know, knew him and befriended him. And he, he battled with various of these delusions. He had grown up in an upper middle class, loving, caring, supportive family that provided but in his late teen years, he started to hear voices in his head. And that led to this. By the time I met him, and I found this out later, he had been on medication that wasn't his choosing. There's some degree of being forced to take this. And he'd been hospitalized for some lengthy periods of time in psychiatric care. I, and then he joined home groups. He's a fun guy play guitar, show up at the church picnic, and he's sitting under the tree playing the guitar, make you laugh, enjoyed people, sat right here at the front usually, right? Uh, I remember being in Andrew and Denise's home group once, your house, and he was in that home group. She's here. Uh, Mike helped Phoebe Jean, too. He was one of the initial, like, Phoebe Jean brigade of helpers. 
uh, that's grown through the years. Some of you are part of that brigade. And they were both, I think you guys were both in this home group. It was quite a home group. And I remember one night, Mike, he would say the strangest thing. He had a faith, a real faith and a strong faith. And you say, how can someone who thinks he's Jesus have a faith? I'm telling you, this is a psychiatric religious delusion. And he would say some of the most encouraging things in faith and talk about his faith in Jesus Christ and all of these kinds of things. But then he would say things like, I remember one night at your house at the Bible study, and he something in his mind we were talking about scripture reminded him of a Beatles song. And he said, it seems to me that the Beatles are more, are more scriptural than the Bible. You know, things like that. Don't get on Mike for, like, he's wrong. He needs to be corrected. In fact, along those lines, he, asked, he, would, he started to manage his health quite well. He would know when things were coming on, and so he would check himself into psychiatric care. He didn't like it. He hated it. And I would sometimes go to visit him. And it was quite an institution where he was, all kinds of levels of care and security. There's a chaplain there who used to be the pastor of a church. And the first time I visited Mike, this chaplain was rather standoffish. I had to arrange the visit through him. And he was just kind of like putting up with me. Well, as time went on, he really warmed up. Next couple times I went, and I asked him, like, what's going on? How come the... And he said, hear this, church. He said, and he's a Christian man, pastor, chaplain. He said, in our experience, most of the time, people who come from churches make things worse, not better. Because they're so afraid of people's struggles, psychiatric illness, and delusions that they take their grid and want to impose it upon them and fix this person. He said, your church, obviously, through friends like Voss and others, many of you here, your church has just befriended Mike and come alongside him. I think you're, I think you're being Christian. So, you know, most of you know how it ends. It's not over, though. Um, the, the time of year when ministers take a break after a busy time, often the week right after Christmas, uh, Jen and I were up, like, Whistler, Squamish. I think we were staying in Squamish, but we went skiing in Whistler or something. Um, Dylan was the associate minister at the time. He was actually away, too. Mike was close with both of us. And I got a message on my phone that I didn't get right away, like the end of the day or something. Mike, can you give me a call? Nothing of urgency at all. Nothing that would tweak, you know, is, is he okay? Is something wrong? And so I made a mental note. Give him a call back when you get back home in a couple of days. And it wasn't until later that I found out he tried the same thing with Dylan, and Dylan was in the same circumstance as me, but, but made the judgment that there's nothing severe happening here and, talk to Mike later. And of course, what happened is that we found out afterwards that on December 30th that week, Mike late at night drove his car onto the Lionsgate Bridge and just stopped it in the middle of the bridge and got out. Uh, Somebody saw the car stop and he jumped off the bridge. He had come to me, disappeared from Sutherland for a while, a number of months before this. He came into my office, and he looked super happy. He was almost always, he was very much happy most of the time. And he had 
needed to tell me something. It, it was good news. And he sat down. I'm like, how are you doing? I'm great. I need to tell you something. I want your feedback. I'm like, okay. He said, I don't need my medication anymore. The order had run out on him being forced to take it. And so now it was kind of up to him. And he said, and believed. Please be gracious to him. Wished and believed. He said, God's healed me. Now what do you want a pastor to say when you tell your pastor that? Oh, thanks be to God. I paused and he know he's what you know, he was now getting a bit nervous as to my response, and I said, Mike, I know you are being healed. Because I've seen that happening. But you're asking clearly you're asking for my opinion on a medication issue. And I don't have the expertise for that. That's a medical question. And other people will be able to tell you whether you're healed medically. It was really disappointing to him. He was crushed. I tried. I leaned in. I said, Mike, I love you. I know you're being healed. But I can't give you what you want on this one. He disappeared from the church for months. I found out, because I ran into him, because he was still friendly, that he was going to the Mormon church down the street. I think it's just, you know, a close one that he found. He wasn't denominationally, um, you know, uh, picky. And it didn't last there very long, because that expression of, of religion tends to be a lot more moralistic even than many of the really Christian views. We ran into him, I ran into him one day and he said, do you know that they have a rule against caffeine? As if like, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> and I think somebody must have upset him there because he wasn't, he, he couldn't follow rules like most people do. And he wound up coming back here, but he wasn't the same. I remember he helped with our Vancouver serve. He did some janitor stuff and all the kinds of things that he always felt. And then it was just a few months, like that would have been August and in December is when he committed suicide. I called the chaplain after, obviously. And he answered, and I said, Todd calling, and right away he said, yeah, obviously I know what's happened. And then right away he said to me, how are you doing? You okay? And I said, not really. I said, he, he reached out to us. And, and I mean, I'm smart enough to know. You don't have to console me by saying, Todd, it's not your fault. And, but he, he had a deeper answer. He said, you know it's not your fault. And he said this, and this is what I want to talk to you about today in sermon in a few minutes. <clears throat> he said, Todd, loneliness is such a terrible thing for people. 
he said, might carry a loneliness that's almost impenetrable. And his illness added all kinds of difficult layers to that. He said, you could have had him over every day during the Christmas break for dinner with your family, welcomed into your home, and he would have still been lonely. And in the end, to some degree, though we trust the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was swallowed up by the loneliness. That's why I'm talking to you. Because I'm pretty convinced that every one of you knows what it means to feel lonely. Finish Mike's story. I'm going to have to work on the time for this, but whatever. I knew the chaplain was speaking truth. I do believe in healing. I do believe that God promises abundant life, but I know that loneliness is something that is difficult and terrible and prevalent for so many in this life. The chaplain was right about Mike, and I think he was right about our church as well. He actually wrote a letter to our church expressing his gratitude. I read it one Sunday. I ride my bike over the Lionsgate Bridge at least three times each week, at least. And very often as I do, I think about Mike. I picture him. I'm not, this isn't a, uh, a burdensome, terrible thought. It, there's life in it, too. I think of what, about what Mike must have been feeling. It's one of the most beautiful spots in the world, at least in the daytime. Sun and breeze and water and hills and green, light. Think about what Mike must have been feeling and how he pulled himself over that low rail. I think about him jumping and being in between the bridge and the water. And I pray that in that moment, even that one moment, he knew that he was not alone. He indulged me to pray. Dear God, thank you for Mike. He was a true joy. He did not know how to talk the language of the church. He said some of the craziest things, and people here didn't reject him. Maybe we could walk alongside, but if we were unable to but we were unable to get truly close. I think that we did well for Mike. I'm grateful. And would you allow me one trifling thought that you were with him when he jumped, even then? That maybe in that moment he was okay. That maybe then he was free. In Christ's name. Our scripture reading. Scripture this morning starts at Matthew chapter 13, verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand and you will indeed see, but never perceive. Then Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, 
and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And lastly, Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, yema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the word of the Lord. With Mike's story, what what I want you to see that I didn't emphasize through most of the story until the end, right? That there under the surface and sometimes above the surface when we can't hide it, we are, many of us or most of us, prone to carry tremendous loneliness. Any story, and I pray about this with telling the little bit of Mike's story that I told you, any story, I, I don't ever want to turn somebody's life into a theme for my benefit, right? Mike is much more than that loneliness. And I would ask you to remember that. But as I consider his life and his faith, this is something that just um, pounds in my head. And allows me to ask the question on your behalf, what do we do with this loneliness in this life? And how can we as Christian people be witnesses to others who are also dealing with terrible loneliness? What does this have to do with faith? And where can I discern the presence of God? And what does this have to do with Christian hope? Where is Jesus Christ in this story? Jean Vanier, one of the, you know, if you just want to read everything Vanier wrote and listen to everything he's ever said, you can look online. You'll you'll do better as a person. He's a beautiful man. Working with the disabled all around the world. And he says that the prime motivation of his work is the, is the loneliness of the human heart. I mean, it's his, it's his Christian faith. But that people he works with and everyone is dealing with loneliness. He's the founder of the L'Arche communities. There's some here in Vancouver. He speaks of loneliness as intrinsic, as a central human concern, and he outlines how loneliness shows up as chaos in people's lives. Now you can feel some of that shows up as chaos. And here's one of the things he said. So loneliness can become, and when he says it, he sounds so spiritual, and he really is. It's so beautiful, and he's so gentle. He says, so loneliness can become, I'm going to stop again, and you know when he's saying it that he's thinking of people that he knows. So loneliness can become agony, a scream of pain. There is no light, no consolation, no touch of peace and the joy life brings. Such loneliness reveals the true meaning of chaos. There is only emptiness, anguish, and inner agitation. Such a person feels completely cut off from everyone and everything. 
our consideration this morning in our scripture reading, where we touch down in the scriptures, is to consider Jesus Christ in loneliness. We'll look at other lives in the Bible through this series, but I keep getting back to our Lord himself. Jesus speaks, and can you feel the power in something like this? To do it, you have to imagine yourself in a similar circumstance. Jesus speaks to his friends and closest followers, and he says to them, you will all desert me. Imagine anything worse. You need to cast yourself as the one who will be deserted, because that's a terrible fear for many of us. But you need also to cast yourself as the one who is being told, you will desert me. Because you might say something like, I never ever will. You'll all desert me. Peter, and the others as well, but Peter's the loudest. He says, no, I'll never desert you. Stop talking actually about this. I will die for you. When Jesus says to them that they'll desert him, It's not like sometimes you would do to friends, like an accusation. It's a grace. He's telling them what they're going to do before they do it, so that when they do it, they won't die. That they will know He knew. And after Peter denies Jesus three times, just like he said, even told him about the rooster and everything else, Peter runs out of the city and breaks down into just a weeping mass. A friend of mine, older, not attending this church, a friend for decades, she lives alone and she's so social if you meet her. She comes to life with people around, but she's by herself most of the time now. She's convinced that people are breaking into her apartment. They're breaking in, taking things. And we'll say, well, what are they taking? Because they're not taking anything of value. Well, they took my wedding album. Those thieves and wedding albums. <laughs> and then you go back later and you find the wedding album. What happened? Well, they broke in again and brought it back. Why would she feel that? It's a psychosis from loneliness. My neighbor across the alley, he didn't ask me if I could show this picture, so if you know who this guy is, don't tell him, okay? He's like, what is he, Gen 90? Something like that. 90-something. Lives across the alley, grows a bunch of stuff. He's Italian, so he's got like this homestead. And Jen's way more patient with him than I am. I see him and I think, oh, no, I hope he doesn't start talking. You know, unless I have like the clearest schedule in history. But we do talk. But we got like 15 giant zucchinis in our house because if Jen goes and talks to him, he just starts giving her produce from his garden. His wife died 25 years ago. And he's broken down physically now. He can't even walk his dogs anymore. He said to us the other day on this occasion, he said, I thought you guys had moved. I've been a volunteer hospital chaplain. It's not extraordinary to get a call. It's happened to me a number of times. I'm sure others, nurses, would call and say, can you come visit this patient? And when I do, 
this is not all cases or even many, but when I do, uh, what the ailment is is a debilitating loneliness. No one to visit, no one in their life, and that pain becomes physical, and it's utter chaos. There can be a correlation, of course, to how many people you know, how many relationships you have, and some of you in this place are thinking, well, I'm lonely, but the rest of the people in here aren't because they're married or have a family or whatever. Can I say to you, that is not necessarily a correlation. Some of you have felt the terrible pain of what it feels like to be lonely in a marriage. devastating within a relationship or within a community. There's a spiritual aspect to this. And if we're going to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, loneliness and the cry of the heart in our community is one of the ways that we're going to have to be attentive. So let me share this with you in terms of the Spirit. I don't know how to alleviate all your loneliness or even my own. And I can't simply solve things for somebody like Mike, though I wish I could. And the people, on remember, on this side of the thing who say, it's all victory in life. And if you had just done what Jesus wanted you for, Mike, he would have been okay. But I, I also don't believe that, you know, I can be of no help. So here's what guides me a bit with this. And the first one is the most striking point to me. Stay with me on it. Nobody has ever been as lonely as Jesus Christ. Do you know that? You will all fall away. He would say that to you. He would say that to me. My faith interacts here. So here's what happens in my devotional life when I was praying about this earlier this week. I wind up desperately wanting Jesus to not be alone. And so I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, I I wish you weren't alone, like that type of thing, like I did with Mike. But there is a kind of companionship in the realization that Jesus Christ knows what it feels like on this earth to be lonely. You say the relationship with the Father. I understand that. We'll get there. Our very salvation, secondly. Well, the first thing to know as from the first point is, and I don't say it tritely or I don't want to, you are not alone in your loneliness. Our Lord has experienced that. More even than you do. Our, secondly, our very salvation, the hope of the world, is connected to this loneliness. There is no one, not one, who could do for the world what Jesus Christ did. So that feeling when you collaborate with someone, work on something, get something done, and you share kind of a partnership and a companionship and It's a really good feeling, and it alleviates a lot of loneliness in life. Jesus Christ, what he accomplished for the world, there was nobody else who could add even an iota to that work. And finally, defeating chaos and death and loneliness, Jesus Christ calls us to hope. I will acknowledge the loneliness that people can feel, but in my faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I know that one day, and here's his promise, I will take you to be with me. What's the first name of Jesus, the one given at Christmas time? One of the first names of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. His very name is given to pierce the loneliness of humanity. We are reminded that God has chosen not to be God without us. He has not turned away. He has not deserted or abandoned us. The call of love above all else. 
God turns towards us. So this quote to read for you, this is a Dostoevsky quote from the Brothers Karamazov, brilliant novel. Love people even in their sin, for that is the semblance of divine love, and it is the highest love on earth. Love all of God's creation, the whole and every grain of sand of it. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love the animals, love the plants, love everything. If you love everything, you'll perceive the divine mystery in things. And once you perceive it, you'll begin to comprehend it better every day. And you'll come at last to love the world with an all-embracing love. So incarnation itself, Jesus becoming human, is improperly understood if it's understood in any other way than an outcome of this, work, this divine love. Listen to the verse. For God so loved the world that He gave. However, what becomes devastating and interesting is that the one is that this one scent that we would not be alone experiences a loneliness like no other. He goes off repeatedly to pray by himself. He's not experiencing a loneliness there, but he knows what solitude is. Keep company and be with the fathers. But if you look through the Gospels, he was headed towards utter loneliness. Crowds of people following him. Jesus, the superstar, that's like the church when it's at its peak. And people stop following him. And he starts talking about his death, and they're not really into that. They want, you know, the new iPhone. They want success. And he begins to find himself alone. He doesn't manage the PR very well and tells people not to advertise the miracles. He does tell them that. And as the crowds start to thin, he begins to say strange things, speaking of his death, saying that you will eat my flesh and drink my blood. Some of his followers try to correct this. Peter again, we want a superhero, not a savior of divine love. You still want a superhero. We've got to grow up. So Peter, when Jesus says, I'll die, I'll be handed over, I'll No, 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 you're the superhero. No. And it's on that occasion. Do you remember what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. All Peter was doing was trying to protect Jesus in the world, like churches do sometimes. I'll refer maybe next week. We'll do something different to those two Japanese terms that are very interesting. Here's where Jesus is alone, utterly alone. No one else in the world could have done what he has done, and he did it out of love for the world and for you. And he was abandoned as no one has ever been. My Christian faith contains a mystery in it here, and it's the cry that Aaron read for us, that from all of humanity, Jesus cries not only on his behalf, but on yours. On the cross, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? God who will never abandon us. What happened there? He was alone like we'll never ever know. We ought not to be flippant about loneliness, but somehow he is with us even in our loneliness. And in my faith I cry out, Jesus, I don't want you to feel alone. And I cry out for Mike. Why did he have to battle that so much? But in the end, I'm grateful for him. And I think he demonstrated a life of joy and faith.
and when I ride over the bridge, I'll keep thinking, but in a positive way. Not every time, but sometimes. Of my friend. My brother in Christ. So from here, this is what I'd like you to do. Take that sheet, um, that the so what sheet, and take up some of those practices. But right here, before we turn to um, communion and worship, we'll, we'll receive communion as we worship. Okay. Take um, 30 seconds right now, I'll pray. And what I want you to do is imagine someone in your life other than yourself. Try that for at least a minute. I'm, I'll, I'll imagine all of you, okay? So you imagine somebody other than you who is lonely. And you know they are, and you know you're going to see them soon. And as I pray, you say, you can even say it quietly out loud to yourself as a prayer, to to God as a prayer, but you can verbalize it. Dear Lord God, help me to witness to your gospel for that person. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit and open our eyes now to know people in our lives, maybe even in this room, but outside of this room particularly, who are dealing with loneliness and help us as people who know the same struggles to come alongside, uh, guided entirely by our faith in you and our love for them. Help us to picture these people. Help us to be attentive in our world for this. And help us to be witness to your love. Not to fix them, not to correct them, not even in some way to, you know, convert them. (laughs) But to allow, Holy Spirit, you to do that kind of work that we would seek to bless them with this faith. Before we turn to communion, it's a good way to end, right? Oh, can we get back to that? Don't worry about it. I can show it. Mike gave me a book of his poems. Um, I won't give the whole book to you because some of them are really weird. (laughs) Like crazy weird. Um, He did have severe mental health difficulties. And some of them are actually quite literary and deep. This one is just one of those bouncy, rhymy poems, but I'll read part of it to you. And look at what he's drawn all over it. Crosses and suns and hearts and Jesus loves you at the top. When sharing love, something grows inside if you open up and enjoy the ride. Now some of you are remembering him. Open up, feel free to love, and you'll find a love that fits like a glove. If you let him in, he'll save your soul. He'll free you up like rock and roll. He loved rock and roll. Decide to dance, decide to sing. Know our Savior is everything. Remember this, he's magical. And I theologically, well, not quite magical, Mike, but anyway. Remember this, he's magical. He's love and kindness. He's wonderful. He'll free your heart and soothe your soul. To deliver us is his goal. And if you're lonely, do not fret. Remember things get better yet. Jesus loves you for who you are. In his heart, you are a star. No one's denied if that you choose. Believe in Christ. You cannot lose. Keeps going. He'll stay with you until you're grown, and then you'll see that he's your friend. A friend for life never ends. He'll sit beside you if you need. He'll be in the Bible that you read. He has a line about he'll be with your mom. He'll keep you happy. He'll keep you glad. He'll be the best friend you ever had. Like when you share in love, you're going to grow by might. Let's pray for the communion.